Welcome to the Wildlife Explorer, a podcast by Essex Wildlife Trust, where we aim to inspire you with our work to protect the wildlife and wild places of Essex and what you can do to help wildlife wherever you live. On today's show, we're going to be having a day out at the seaside, accompanied by a very cute puppy called Betsy, and a saunter along the salt marsh to discover all the new life that is bursting into the world at this time of year. We'll also be delving into a modern mystery. Where have all the eels gone? Despite being one of our most recognisable fish species, they have disappeared at an alarming rate and no one seems to know why. Not only that, there are many other secrets eels are not willing to reveal to the human race just yet, so keep listening to find out why. We'll also be back with our What Three Birds feature, helping you to identify three bird calls you may well hear at this time of year. It's all coming up on the show. excitement of 30 days wild has died down you're stuck back with me for a while i'm afraid i hope everyone has been managing to keep cool in what has been an extreme heat wave here in the uk we've seen some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded and it's not just people that have been struggling our wildlife have been hit hard with usual water sources drying up and birds and other wildlife finding it difficult to stay cool and stay hydrated We've been calling for people to leave shallow bowls of water out in their gardens for wildlife to find. And this small lifeline has been helping lots of little visitors who might not have been able to find water elsewhere. It's really inspiring to see how much you've gone the extra mile to help many different species during this time. Putting out trays of water in fields, creating hanging water sources in your gardens for birds, freezing small fruit and vegetables for a lucky visitor to find, and lots more. The first thing most of us think about when the weather gets warmer is heading to the coast. The welcome relief of running into the cool, sparkling sea or taking advantage of the coastal breeze while enjoying a picnic. The more adventurous among us head out on jet skis, boats and paddle boards and enjoy the very fleeting feeling that we live in a nice sunny country. A far cry from the grey clouds that usually aren't more than a couple of hours away here. But amongst all this frantic human activity, threatened coastal birds are still trying to live and raise their young. Baby fish are spawning within our salt marshes and fragile plants are popping up along the coastline. It's important to remember our fun days shouldn't be at the expense of the species that call this wild space home all year round. We'll cover some more about this and how you can take care of our coastal friends later on in the show. But first, we're going to delve into a very modern mystery. It's the 21st century. Surely we have the answers to everything by now, right? Well, it appears that's wrong. Because despite being one of our most recognisable fish, eels really are slippery when it comes to revealing information about their habits and even how they're born. It's a fascinating mystery and Darren Tansley, our river catchment coordinator, is here to tell us a bit more. 
If you were to ask most people what species of fish they could easily identify, if they just saw it swimming along a river, I suspect the eel would be right at the top of that list. They are the true Essex serpent with their distinctive sinuous shape like bodies and long fins on their back and belly. Fully grown, females are twice the size of their male counterparts, up to a metre long. But in the past, East Anglia has been home to some real monsters. One record tells the capture of a five foot long eel weighing 27 pounds. That's 1.5 metres and 12 kilograms. Longer and heavier than an otter. And eels have been part of our lives for millennia. The ancient Egyptians worshipped the eel as a god and it was known as the Helen of the dinner plate by the ancient Greeks. In the late 1800s, the first Essex atlas of fish and mammals proclaimed that they were in every river in the county and also recounted tales of eels crawling long distances through wet grass to access new ponds or streams if their existing waterways dried up. For centuries, they were not just a familiar sight on our dinner tables, but were also the favoured prey of our Essex otters. They were so abundant up to the last half of the 20th century that they were a nuisance to anglers continually tangling themselves around fishing lines after swallowing hook, line and bait. Thousands of elvers, known as glass eels, could be seen migrating into the estuaries from the open sea each spring, and they've even made their mark on place names such as Ely, which is said to have been named from the yearly rent of 100,000 eels paid to the Lord of the Manor. Eels span freshwater rivers, estuaries and open ocean depending on what stage they are in their life cycle. But despite their apparent familiarity, they're a species still shrouded in mystery. It was only in the 1920s that scientists finally concluded that American and European eels travelled to the great oceanic gyre of the Sargasso Sea to breed. This lifetime migration of 10,000 kilometres eclipses even that of the Atlantic salmon, but their journey is also reversed. Most migratory fish, salmon included, breed in the freshwater shallows of upstream rivers, then their young return to sea to live out their lives as adults. Eels do the opposite, breeding in the ocean then swimming thousands of kilometres as tiny larvae which metamorphosize into transparent elvers called glass eels. These enter the rivers, growing browner as they mature, until many years later they are ready to migrate back out to sea on their final journey as large silver eels. The various stages look so different it was long assumed that these were different species. It is also no surprise that a slew of myths and legends developed in medieval times to explain where young eels came from. Some contended that they sprang up from horsehair thrown into the river. Others that they were from maydew that formed on grass turves cut from the riverbank. But the most remarkable thing is that despite our studies and technology, at this point in the 21st century, no one has ever witnessed eels spawning. Tagged eels have entered the Sargasso, but no study has successfully tracked them to their breeding sites. And neither has it fully understood how they managed to navigate these huge distances across oceans. There are even patterns of behaviour that have been observed, but for which we have no explanation. The latest tagging study of eels demonstrated that on a daily basis, they would travel at depths of 200 metres, then down to 1,000 metres, and then back again on a daily cycle. The usual reason for rising to the surface is to catch prey, but eels don't feed on migration, so what are they doing? 
It seems that we're just as ignorant about certain aspects of the eel's life cycle and behaviour as our medieval ancestors. It is only in the last few years that we learnt that eels use different routes to migrate out of the North Sea. Some go north and loop around the top of the British Isles, whilst others head out through the English Channel. So does it really matter that we don't know where they spawn, what this process looks like, or even how they find their way around the ocean? Well, in many ways, the answers to those questions might help us with a much more important mystery. Where have all the eels gone? Our rivers no longer teem with the vast migrations of hundreds of millions of eels, and not just in Essex, but across the globe. Something has happened over the past three decades to reduce the previously unimaginable numbers of fish to a level where they are considered globally endangered. Could it be changes in ocean currents due to climate change? What about problems in their spawning areas? We still don't have a definitive answer to say. We do know that a significant proportion of the remaining eels have been caught in estuaries before reaching the rivers and are shipped to overseas markets, so are enough being allowed to remain and grow into breeding adults? In Essex, the routes that eels enter our rivers have been blocked with mills, weirs and other barriers. But to be honest, most of these were already there before the eel population crashed, and it would seem that it is a lack of returning elvers that is the real issue here. It seems incredible that the one fish most of us would have no problem identifying, and is so much a part of our human mythology and history over the millennia, is still such a mystery to science. One day, a tagged eel may lead us to the site where they breed, but for now we can only speculate. Throw some horsehair in the river, let's just hope for the return of the eels in spring. Thanks Darren. Well, let's hope for the eel's sake that someone can decipher the mystery soon so that we know how we can help them thrive once more. Now we're going to head down to the carbon-fighting super habitat that is our salt marsh at Abbots Hall, where some fish we do know more about are currently spawning, as well as looking at some of the other hidden gems of this wild wilderness. Lauren Cosson, our communications officer, and Rachel Langley, our Living Seas Coordinator, are here to tell us more. Hi everyone, I'm here with Rachel today talking about our salt marsh. Hi Rachel. Hello. How have you been doing? Yeah, good thank you. Really excited to be out on the marshes again. It's so nice in the summer and obviously summer's a perfect time for all your marine projects to come to life. So. Tell us a bit about the salt marshes in the summer. How's everything been going? Yeah, good. So um, towards the end of summer is actually a really great time to survey for juvenile fish. So um, some, in some recent summers, we've actually done some juvenile fish surveys where we've been looking for those baby fish that are using the managed realignment. So the big created salt marsh area out of its full farm, Nature Reserve. So what exactly about the salt marsh makes it a good habitat for fish, especially juvenile fish, to want to... Why do they feel so safe here? Why do they like it? Yeah, good question. So there's a couple of things. So one is it's a really good place for refuge so they can hide from those larger, larger those predatory fish and other creatures. And it's also a good place for them to get um, a variety of food. 
Um, in some of the surveys, we've actually found hundreds of juvenile European bass, which is really exciting because those populations are under pressure at the moment. Um, we found things like herring and we found um, thin-lipped grey mullet. Do you ever um, see any eel here? We actually did Baby find eels. a couple of summers ago. We did find an eel in oh, in the marshes amazing. here. So, and that's just a selection of what is using the marshes. But it just shows that really from those species, there's quite a diverse range. Like the bio biodiversity is here, isn't it? Biodiversity, but also just the sheer numbers. So. If you imagine we've got these wonderful nursery areas where these, these baby fish can, can feed, they can be safe, and then they can go out into the wider estuary and the wider seas and support those populations. So really important, really exciting, makes it even more important that we're protecting our exi existing salt marshes and also looking at options for future managed realignments to create those additional areas. Yeah, because the managed realignment means there's so much more salt marsh here and that's great for us because it's absorbing all the carbon it's a coastal defense but it's so important like you're saying for the fish for new life so if you're saying that juvenile fish come here kind of late september so we're coming into autumn time how long will they hang around the salt marsh for before they get a bit bigger get a bit braver and when will they start heading out so it so it varies from species to species so um gobies stay in the um, main estuary area all year round and um, the European bass and other species will stay, some will stay for a few weeks, some for a few months, it really kind of depends on the species. So, And also kind of thinking on an annual scale, they are being used by different species throughout the whole year to, to various scales. This, the, um, the September time is just a really optimum time to capture those those little babies and, that's and, when you and do some your of the adults. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. But what kind of predators are they hiding from? Well, so some of the species will actually be hiding from um, larger European bats. Mm -hmm. um, there may be um, crabs and things like that that are going to grab them, those larger fish We've species. just seen some crab shells on the salt marsh there. Yes, Skeletons, yes. haven't we? They, little white they skeletons. Like, yeah, the common shore crabs um, enjoy the, the creeks and the, um, the salt marsh habitats as well. That's so nice, but what can, what can the fish eat? So if they're part of this ecosystem, if they're being predated on, but what, what do the fish like to look for themselves? Yeah, so obviously it depends on the individual species. Some of them will eat um, smaller fish. They might eat shrimps and things like that. Um, some of them may be more herbivorous, so mm -hmm. they're eating um, yeah, plant well, I was going to ask you, because there are so many plants here, which maybe people wouldn't expect thinking of a salt marsh, but there is quite a lot of new life, not just from the fish, but also from plants popping up. So what kind of plant species might people find on the salt marsh? Yeah, so um, a big variety, more than you than you may expect from link, looking at um, sometimes what could look, just look like a, mm -hmm. a blanket of marsh. So the summit is a great time to actually see some of the species that flower. So you could find the sea lavender that have the, the lovely purple hue. Do, does sea lavender have the same smell as the lavender in our gardens or is that a myth? <laughs> no, no. They don't smell as nice? <clears throat> They're probably being blown no. to the wind, so <laughs> it doesn't smell as nice. No, um, but but still just very as colourful, very beautiful. Yeah, and obviously in the in the spring summer we also have the the pioneer species come in, mm -hmm. and these are 
the species that will first colonise those mudflats, so lay down those roots in those mudflats and potentially expand that salt marsh area. So it's in the spring summer is a really good time to see um, new sprouts of um, salicornia, which is a samphire, which you may have you may have eaten. Wow, um, yeah, that's, that's a so really cool. important one. You can see them kind of popping through, can't you? They're quite bright green. Yes. It's an interesting texture, haven't they? Yes. So that's an exciting one as well. And it's just, it's a really lovely time to be on the marsh, see all the, um, yeah, see all those flowers bloom. But into the autumn, the marshes could turn a lovely kind of reddy hue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Very autumnal. All year round, kind of, they're changeable habitats. And, yeah, it's lovely to watch, definitely. When will you start to get... Um, you know the wintering birds here will they start appearing at the end of summer or do they come a bit later um so again it will depend on the species but they can come like towards the end of summer beginning of autumn um and as we get on into the winter months there will obviously be a wonderful dark-bellied brent geese that come to our estuaries and our marshes in their thousands from siberia yeah and and lots of other species beside that salt marshes are a wonderful habitat for the the waders and wetland birds well it sounds like there's so much to see all year round so it's an exciting exciting time but i'm looking forward to seeing what results your surveys show up and how many fish we've got living here at the moment yeah thank you me too it was nice to speak to you rachel you too bye thanks both that's lovely to hear about all the new life spawning at this special habitat Now, let's move on to our What Three Birds feature, where each month we will play three different clips of birdsong to help you identify different species while you're out and about. First up is the sweet sound of the blackbird, a familiar, comforting song to many, particularly on early spring and summer mornings. The blackbird, like many other birds, primarily sings to attract a mate or to ward off rivals. They are also skilled mimics and can incorporate human sounds as well as other birds' sounds into their song. But the most familiar tune is the one we will play for you now, a lilting, joyful affair with deep contrast and cascading notes. is another familiar bird, the house sparrow. House sparrows have rather a simple song and sing for many reasons. Males cheat for most of the year to let females know they are in possession at the nest, whereas males and females cheat to show submissiveness in their flock or in their individual pairs during courting. Hopefully you will have heard this busy song in your garden many times before. lastly, as we're talking about all things coastal this month, we couldn't miss out on one of the most evocative sounds of the seaside, 
provided by one of our most common goals, the herring gull. Herring gulls can be identified by their large size, pale grey upper parts and pink legs. In summer they have a white head and this develops dark streaking in winter. Gulls sometimes get a bad reputation for stealing chips, but they are intelligent, adaptable and beautiful birds and a day out on the beach wouldn't be complete without their haunting call. Now we've heard about some of the species you can hope to hear this month, let's move on to our wildlife wows to see what else is popping up across the county. As we mentioned at the start of the show, July typically brings even warmer weather and we've certainly experienced extreme temperatures so far this summer. Providing a water source in your garden is essential for helping a huge range of wildlife thrive. Painted lady butterflies love the minerals and salts found in slightly muddy water and can often be seen in large numbers having migrated from the European and African wintering grounds. Witness flashes of blue, red and green as dragonflies and damselflies dance along the riverbanks. And keep an ear out for the distinctive plop of a water bowl as juveniles establish new territories. Also, listen out for the low hum of a metallic green rose chafer beetle, whose jaw-like body seems too large for flight. The same can be said for stag beetles, who are out on the hunt for a mate at this time of year. Their impressive jaws might look fearsome, but they are completely harmless to humans. If you're looking for some activities to do as a family this month, or just fancy learning something new, don't forget to head over to our website and check out our events page. From bug hunting to pond dipping, woodland magic to dinosaur adventures, we have a huge range of wildlife themed fun for everyone. Our local groups regularly hold interesting talks and guided walks, and we can even organise themed birthday parties at our nature discovery centres across the county. Head over to www.essexwt.org.uk to find your next adventure. Now let's head back over to the coast where Lottie Hall, our senior designer, is out for a walk with her ridiculously cute puppy Betsy and is helping us to share our shores with the wonderful wildlife that call it home. Hello everyone, I'm Lottie Hall, Senior Graphic Designer here at Essex Wildlife Trust. It's a beautiful summer's morning today, so me and my little puppy Betsy have come down to the beach 
to enjoy a wonderful stroll beside the sea. Say hi Betsy. She's looking up, wagging her tail and has a little bit of a grin on her face. Betsy is a 15 week old Labrador puppy. So I'm working on getting her used to walking on lead and making sure she gets used to the sights and sounds of many different environments. So far, the beach and the coast have been her absolute favorite places to walk. People seem to love her too. I feel like I'm walking a little mini celebrity sometimes with the amount of people that come up to us and say hi. It's lovely though to see so many happy smiley people out enjoying a walk and that are happy to come and say hello. I think the outdoors really does wonders for transporting you away from the stresses of everyday life and just lifting those spirits. Nothing quite beats being on the beach with your sand between your toes and watching those waves cascade towards the shoreline. This morning, in the distance, I can see children making what looks to be a super impressive sandcastle. It looks like it's even got a moat. There's also a bevy of seagulls congregating in the distance. The waves are glistening in the sunshine. There's a lovely gentle breeze and in the background uh, floating along I can just about see a blackwater barge which is lovely. We've also been lucky enough this morning to capture a glimpse of a little turn which was super exciting because I've only ever seen one before. Um, they are one of Essex's most threatened beach nesting birds along with the ringed plover and oyster catcher. Now if you've never seen a little tern before their beak is very very yellow with a little black tip, they've got a white body and a little black bit on top of their head and around their eyes. Between July and August is about the time when all of the beach nesting birds tend to leave their nesting areas with their chicks and their chicks begin to explore the area around them. So Betsy and me are making sure we stick to the shoreline on our walk today. I'm also keeping Betsy on a lead, not just for her own training, but to make sure that she doesn't run off and disturb those little birds in their nest by mistake. The beach we're on has some Share Our Shore signage which is an awareness campaign that's being supported by Essex Wildlife Trust, the RSPB and BirdAware Essex. It's great to have that little reminder that some key bird species are bringing up their young in this area. So we know to avoid any of the roped off zones that are on the beach and I know to keep the walk nearer to the shoreline rather than at the top of the beach. Whenever Betsy and I go out on a walk together, we're always mindful that we're sharing our landscape uh, with nature. So I always read any helpful and useful information that is on a site, because I usually end up learning something too, to be honest, which is nice. We've been out here probably for about half an hour now. So it's probably time for both of us to finish up our walk, isn't it, Betsy? Uh, head back home. She probably could do with a little bit of a bath. Got some muddy, sandy paws. And I think I could do with a nice old cup of tea.
Thanks, Lottie. Sounds like you and Betsy are doing a great job of keeping our royal friends safe. Well, that's about all we've got time for this month. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Wildlife Explorer. And don't forget to keep spreading the word to help us reach more nature lovers out there. If there are any topics you would like us to cover on a future episode, feel free to get in touch with us via email at communications at sxwt.org.uk and we can hopefully answer your questions. So until next month, stay cool and stay wild.